This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, January 22nd. As I'm uh, entering the studio, the affable, venerable, uh, George Genescu, host of Big Band Sunday Night, uh, is leaving the studio. And as we uh, cross paths, uh, we often share a few words, you know, good show and straight home George and all that. Uh, George, who is celebrating, what is it now, uh, 63 years in broadcasting, uh, will be on this program next Sunday, January 29th. I really urge you to tune in because George is going to undergo, live on the air, geez, we better check in with the CRTC. Is this even legal? (laughs) Uh, Quick, call the people at uh, Errors and Omissions. Uh, um, We're going to do a a past life regression right here on the air. And George Genescu, God bless him, uh, uh, jumped at the opportunity. We had Debbie Papadakis, a hypnotherapist, in the studio just uh, after New Year's. And uh, George was listening to the program on the way home and said, well, that's interesting. I'd like to be involved with that. So I, I invited him on, uh, and he's, he's going to be here next week. And I don't know if he's going to be in like a reclined in an easy chair or laid out on a massage table or what, but he's going to be under, man. He's going to be regressed back. And uh, we're going to find out live on the air, as he does, who he may have been in a previous life. Which is, it's kind of a hard one for me because I don't subscribe, as I've, I've, I think I've mentioned, uh, I don't subscribe to a reincarnation. However, having witnessed a number of these regressions uh, on the radio, on the TV show, uh, I've been there, witnessed it. Uh, the, the, the emotions uh, uh, that, that, um, that, um, that come from these regressees, we call them, these people that are, that are put under the regression, the hypnosis, is so genuine. Uh, and you're sitting there witnessing them as they're experiencing something. I don't know what it is. It could be, uh, you know, the, the mind is an incredible uh, machine. 
that can, uh, you know, create these elaborate narratives. It could be something like that. It could be something in the subconscious, something that we've, you know, we've seen or read. Uh, it could be, I don't know, the DNA memory. I don't know what it is, but there's something going on, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a chance to uh, uh, to witness that. George Ginescu, I can't wait. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention very quickly, uh, Richard Dolan, UFO historian, will be with us in the second hour. Victor Vigiani will be with us as well from Zeland News Service. And uh, Richard Dolan, uh, the author of uh, UFOs and the National Security State and AD After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After, after Contact, uh, will be here for the last hour. He's coming to Toronto to do a uh, speaking engagement at the, I believe it's the Northern District Library up in North York. We'll, we'll give you all the details on that. Uh, it's like 10 bucks, but what an, uh, a, a compelling uh, speaker he is. And uh, if you're looking for something to do on a Saturday night uh, and you got 10 bucks that's burning a hole in your pocket, that's where I would put it. Um, because he's, uh, he just has, he's such a font of information and he's, he's talked to, he's an historian and he, he, he approaches the, the UFO uh, issue. Uh, I don't care what side of uh, the fence you're on on this, or whether you you got a crease in your pants. He he brings a certain discipline to it, and it's fascinating to hear his position on um, on UFO secrecy. And uh, he's examined government documents. So uh, even if you're a skeptic, it's it's certainly worth uh, getting out there and having a listen. But if you can't get out to the library, stay tuned because he'll be here in just under an hour uh, to talk UFOs. Now, speaking of, uh, of uh, skeptics and for those who want to believe, remember that iconic phrase? And uh, this television series had uh, several of them. They, they became, it became part of the, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the lexicon, the pop culture lexicon, phrases like, I want to believe and the truth is out there. Uh, the X-Files, of course, uh, which was a smash uh, hit. It remains a phenomenon uh, and it, it probably won't be duplicated uh, simply because of the, I guess, the fragmentization of the, um, uh, of the audience and the Internet and so forth. Uh, just like, you know, there'll never be another Beatles from the 1960s, there'll never be another X-Files. Uh, and I'm really delighted to have uh, this next gentleman um, on the show. He is, I think, arguably, TV's greatest villain. And if, uh, wouldn't that be great to put that on your resume? TV's greatest villain, and if you're fans of the X-Files, or even if you were a casual uh, observer, uh, you couldn't um, uh, escape uh, the, the riveting performance of um, my next guest. He was a child actor, he's an artistic director, producer, writer, as I say, TV's greatest villain. He's done it all, and uh, for the first time, he's, uh, he's put it down, his, his life story, in a, uh, in a memoir. It's called Where There's Smoke. Musings of a cigarette smoking man. Do you remember the cigarette smoking man or cancer man? He was known to some. Uh, well, he's here with us right now. William B. Davis. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And uh, where have we uh, found you? Are you you're on location uh, shooting a film somewhere, I, I gather. Uh, yeah. Yes, I've been shooting a. Uh, I've been shooting a film called The Singularity Principle, and for very complicated reasons, we ended up shooting. Uh, my section of the film in the Bahamas. Uh, so that's where I am. Um, I stayed on an extra few days, and my wife joined me, and we had a little holiday as well. So that's where I am, and I hope our connection holds up while we talk. 
Well, uh, it's it sounds so good so far. Well, you're down in the Bahamas, and I'm guessing you know here we are now, sort of in the uh, the dead of winter, and you're missing the skiing because I know you like to ski. Uh, not not for long, uh, not for long. I, I um, only uh, shot for a few days. Um, I actually was skiing in in Vancouver uh, uh, just over a week ago, and I'm going back uh, tomorrow, so I'll be skiing uh, later later this week. And, uh, not, not, I mean, you like skiing of all sorts. I saw a, a, a picture of you on the Internet. Uh, it looked like you were doing some trick water skiing. That's right. Um, I've done a lot of competitive water skiing, uh, uh, trick skiing and slalom skiing, uh, a little bit of jumping I used to do, but not so much. Um, I have uh, held some national records in my older age divisions in, as a trick skier. Um, although I think I think I've lost them all now, but I did for a little while hold a record. Not, uh, so yeah, that's been a passion of mine. Yeah, not not bad for a guy that we used to see, you know, chain smoking uh, Marleys. Uh, but those were herbal <laughs> cigarettes. I'm gathering. Uh, exactly. Um, they're probably no better for you than uh, than tobacco, but uh, they are not addictive. And God knows when you smoke a few of those, you never want to smoke them again. But, uh, but yeah, that's what I smoked on the show. I, I know you know this is uh, well trodden territory for you, but uh, I mean, an iconic uh, character that you played. Let me ask you first. I mean, being introduced as you know TV's most famous villain is how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I'm I'm quite. Um, quite happy about that. Uh, that that's uh, that's a great honor, really. Um, uh, there have been some great villains, and uh, to be among them, uh, uh, they're all the spectacular actors. So uh, I'm honored, actually, to be to be given that title. Um, I assume we all know that I'm an actor playing a character. That I'm not actually a villain. I'm not actually doing terrible things. Um, so no, it's an as an actor, it's an honor. Um, no, when you read for, when we, when you read for the I guess it was the pilot of the X Files, you weren't going out for uh, the character of, of uh, the cigarette smoking man. Who? What were you trying out for? I read for a part called the senior FBI agent. Now, for all I know, they might have been thinking of me for cigarette smoking man at the time. But since the cigarette smoking man had no lines, there was nothing to read for. But in in my mind, what I understood was I was reading for this part called the senior FBI agent who who had three lines, and I did not get it. I got this this other weird part that had no lines. He just stood around smoking, and, uh, and I said, "Well, okay, why not?" You know, um, at the time I was running my acting school and not thinking too too much about my career as an actor, so I was happy to get a job. And I think I read somewhere that uh, the entire first season you muttered uh, a total of four words. Is that do you, is that correct? <laughs> it probably is. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I'm not going to ask you what those four I, words it, were, but no, they and, and they weren't very complicated. They're like. Um, Yes, I do, or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember, but but no, it was uh, pretty much a shadowy presence in the first season. Uh, it wasn't until the second season that they began to think they wanted to do something with the character. Yeah. I hope you weren't getting paid by the word. That's all. 
Uh, no, no. <laughs> Actors are, are paid by the time. <laughs> I, I got to ask you about the timing of, of the book, William. I mean, I know it's it, it's not about, you know, just about the X-Files here, but in terms of, um, you know, the 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 cultural influence that that, that show had, which is undeniable, uh, but it's, it, it's and you've pointed this out, you know, the, the ephemeral nature of, of, um, of pop culture and, and how uh, those iconic phrases, you know, I want to believe and the truth is out there. I, I mean, people at the office at the water cooler, you know, uh, the, the, the day after the, the show aired were, were, were uttering those, those lines, and now they're gone. Um, so I'm just interested, I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, revisiting that at this point in your career and, and how you feel about the, the influence of, of the X-Files, and then in general, the, I guess, the ephemeral nature of, of, uh, of that influence. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question because there's, there's various strands to it, I guess. Um, the X-Files still really does have a life. Um, there's still a lot of people watching it, people watching it over again. Uh, or, or inviting their children to watch it. Uh, I go to science fiction conventions, and I'm talking to X-File fans all the time. So, so it's still it's still a living, breathing uh, phenomenon. Um, but of course, it doesn't have the um, the, the, the huge impact or uh, or attention that it had in the 1990s. And and what I talked about in the book was that, that it was somehow. Uh, a show for its time, because the, the, we we were almost in a perceptual change. I think as we went from the printed word to to the television age through to the digital age, and uh, certainly for a reader of Marshall McLuhan, which I have been, these these changes in how we observed how 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 we how how information comes into our brain changes how we see the world around us. And in the 1990s, it was very much uh, a time of, is this real or isn't it real? Uh, the Internet was just beginning. Uh, you know, if you remember, uh, your, uh, your um, desktop might be there one minute and gone the next. I mean, just even the, the technology was reliable, but we were depending on it. And... and and the kind of solidity that we had once felt in an earlier era, like the 50s, with books and, and, and something very solid, had diminished. So when a show came along that was about what is real or not real, and it kind of took the position of, well, let's see if these things that some people think are real really were, or maybe they aren't. And, and I think it struck a particular nerve at that time that was, so there was a, a juxtaposition of good fortune for both a good, good television program and a particular timing. William B. Davis uh, is with us, of course, cigarette-smoking man from uh, the X-Files, but he uh, continues to be a hard-working uh, actor. We've reached him uh, on location uh, down in the Bahamas, and uh, his, uh, his memoirs are entitled Where There is Smoke, Musings of a Cigarette-Smoking Man. We'll take a time out, come back, and uh, continue to talk about uh, the X-Files, uh, uh, William's other projects, also uh, his interest in the field of, of skepticism and how that... Uh, uh, may have played out during his uh, his work on the uh, the aforementioned series, The X-Files. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Just a reminder, coming up in Hour 2 of the program, Richard Dolan, UFO historian. Uh, He's going to share, he's told me the story before, uh, but he's going to share it again on the air. And that is a conversation he had with, uh, I believe, uh, the title of this gentleman was uh, Head of Intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Admiral Thomas Wilson. Uh, was his name, now retired uh, from that post, but working in the uh, aerospace industry. And uh, this um, uh, conversation he had he revolved around the question of whether there was a, a t- above-top-secret uh, black ops program uh, that was ostensibly under the, should have been under the direction of, uh, of the admiral, but he didn't know anything about it. It was that, uh, in other words, he didn't have a need to know. Uh, until it was brought to his attention, when he attempted to find out about it, actually called a number and asked to be read in, in other words, be given information about this project, which involved, we are told, um, uh, recovered alien spacecraft, uh, he was told he did not have a need to know. Okay, this is the head of intelligence uh, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So uh, Dolan will uh, recount that conversation he had and uh, much more. That's upcoming. Uh, right now, uh, he's best known, of course, as Cigarette Smoking Man from The X-Files, but on the small screen, he's, uh, his recent credits include guest appearances on hit shows, including Human Target, Caprica, and Supernatural. He was the artistic director of the English Acting Program at Canada's National Theatre School and later founded Vancouver's The William Davis Centre for Actors' Study. He's also appeared in a succession of films opposite stars, including Penelope Ann Miller, Martin Sheen, Ann Archer, uh, Margot Kidder, uh, Matthew Perry, and Brian Dennehy. And uh, he resides in Vancouver, although right now we've reached him in the Bahamas, where he's uh, on location shooting a film. Um, I know that you're, you're uh, involved in, uh, in uh, skepticism, the, the, the skeptics uh, um, uh, field, and, and um, you, you, you speak on the subject. Now, having, I mean, how did that square with playing, um, you know, this pivotal role on a series that was really fueling uh, interest in this whole area uh, on the one hand, and then on the other, you know, you, you, you're, you're a skeptic? Um, yeah, it, it was a, a, an interesting question, and uh, uh, in, in, in a number of different ways. I mean, um, uh, for one, uh, people is, I, I guess people think about A-list actors and think about them choosing the projects they're going to be in. But for most of us in the trenches, we're doing a job because we got the job and we're thrilled to get it. And we love to do the work. Uh, but people would assume that I, I chose to be on the X-Files because I had a particular interest in the subject. And I would have people come up to me and say, oh, do you want to come in? Uh, and we're doing a... Uh, I forgot what they call them, but uh, uh, a, a, a sky watch uh, ne- uh, next week. Do you want to come? And, uh, and just assume that I was uh, involved uh, and, 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 and a firm believer in all of these phenomena. And uh, they were quite surprised when I would say, no, actually, I don't believe really any of this. And they would go, well, why not, they would say. I mean... You mean you don't believe in the end, whether it was uh, alien abduction or whatever the subject was? And I would say, no, I, I think the onus is on you 
to prove that these things exist. It's not on me to prove that they don't. I can't prove that fairies don't exist any more than I can prove that UFOs don't exist. Uh, you have to prove that they do, if that's your contention. And they said, oh, but we have, we have. And at that point I got, oh, well, I wonder what they feel, I wonder how they feel they've proved this. Um, so I thought, well, I guess my response isn't good enough. I'd better get some more information in terms of what they think about these things and, and what other people think and what, it, what is actually known on these subjects. Um, and I was listening to the radio one day, and I was hearing a, um, a talk with Barry Byerstein, who was a member of what was then called PSYCOP, the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. And uh, he was describing the work that these uh, that these very reputable scientists do uh, in in actually putting to scientific scrutiny paranormal or pseudoscientific claims, whether it's something like dowsing for water or whether it's um, Area 51. Um, so I followed him up, and I found out more about the organization. I read their materials. Uh, I've read the research on the subjects, and, I've, and now I've been and spoken to some conventions and talks and got uh, involved that way. Now the, you know, there seems to be a real uh, a schism, um, depending on the subject. I mean, let's, I know that you're interested in evolutionary biology, for example, uh, but, um, and, and I, I've had debates on, on this program, and I, I'm not, I didn't invite you on to debate, obviously, but I, I, I'm interested in your, your, your feelings on this. I've had, you know, attempted to put debates together, let's say, uh, ev- evolution um, proponents versus those of creation design, and there is, uh, it's, it's difficult to get two people like that into a room these days. It's, there's a real schism there there's uh, there's animosity which is unfortunate uh, there is a reluctance uh, you know f- for these people to to engage in a, in a in a public forum not only when it comes to uh, you know evolution or or, or um, intelligent design uh, but a whole host of other subjects where you have sort of the skeptic on one side and the the proponent of whatever theory it is w- what do you think of that I mean is that healthy? Uh, to, uh, uh, I mean, is it justified, let's say, that the skeptic doesn't want to engage? Uh, sorry, I missed the last thing that you said. Oh, I was just going to say... doesn't want to engage? Well, the you, skeptics have been engaging these issues constantly. They're constantly debating uh, with creationist people uh, all the time. I mean, uh, I read about these debates. I don't read them anymore because I know what everybody's going to say. But, right, right. Um, but I, I don't think the skeptics are dodging the issue at all. No, 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 I wasn't suggesting that. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't suggesting yeah. that they were, okay. William. And I, I, there, I mean, there is, a, there is a reluctance on both parts. I mean, even uh, just to engage now, it's, it's as if one or the other or both sides have said, well, the debate is over. There's no, more, there's no point in discussing it anymore. Um, well, if you're asking what I think between evolution and creation science, there is certainly no point in discussing it. I mean, one is science and, and the other is mysticism or, or I mean, they're, they're just, I mean, it's like saying, um, is there any point discussing that the earth is flat or round? Uh, we know it's round, so why would we bother debating people who say it's flat? Um, I mean, it's that cut and dried on, on that particular subject. There are other subjects that are more, um, uh, unclear, but that one is very clear. Um, uh, so, um, 
what uh, but the most uh, the most worrying this follows up with your question the most worrying piece of neurological um, discovery, I guess, kind of neuropsychological discovery that I've read recently. Uh, and they've done research, uh, I guess, at a kind of psychological questionnaire level, and they've studied the way the brain works, that if someone has a firmly held belief, and you present them with the evidence that contradicts that belief, they will, not only will they not change their mind, their belief will become stronger. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about evolution and creationism or you're talking about Israel and Palestine. That's the way the brain works. If I believe something strongly and you give me the evidence against it, I will maintain my first belief even more strongly. That's scary. I think it's part of the, the uh, self-preservation mechanism because if a person's uh, whole identity uh, is invested in that belief and someone yeah. is attempting to disassemble it, then you can understand why that person might dig in their heels because everything that they know and are is at, is at risk. I know, and I agree. And, and, and um, there's a book I read recently, Stuart Brand's, uh, I've forgotten, it's his most recent book, and I've forgotten what, what he calls, what the title is, but, but he was the kind of founder of something called Whole Earth Discipline. Yes. He was one of the original green people, back-to-the-land people. And in his book, he has changed uh, 180 degrees on, on three main subjects. Uh, one is uh, nuclear power, one is genetically modified food, and other is urban living. And it's just, what I really got from the book is, yes, we have to be ready to change our minds, however invested we were. You're quite right. I mean, yes, what, what does a, uh, I mean, if someone's whole identity is tied up with a belief, how do you change that? But you have to. I mean, we have to be able to look at evidence. We have to be able to put things to a scientific test and change our minds, whether it's Galileo and Copernicus or whether it's um, someone now about housing for water or um, homeopathic medicine. You know, I, mean. I, I know that you, you read a lot. I mean, I know that skiing is a, is a love of yours, but you're also a, an avid reader. What has you really... Um, uh, excited these days? Something that you've read, uh, it may be along the lines of evolutionary biology, uh, um, I'm, I'm not, I don't know exactly what all your other sort of literary pursuits or interests right. are, but what, what has you really charged these days? Well, gosh, it's, I mean, it's hard to say. I just read Stephen Hawking's latest book, but, but when I say I read Stephen Hawking's latest book, uh, I, I do mean I read all the words, but whether I actually understood anything he, he, he said, I really couldn't be sure. But um, it, it's fast, the, the two kind of things that fascinate me, uh, you know, on the one hand, this is that's the whole kind of theoretical physics, the whole underlying of the cosmos and the Big Bang and, and uh, all of those kind of issues. And then evolutionary biology on, on the other hand. Um, I'm trying to think what what recently I, I read that would kind of answer your question, and I'm not I'm not sure I have the answer right off the top of my head. Uh, 
Well, the Hawking thing is interesting. Uh, Stephen Hawking, he, he, he recently, uh, within the last couple of years, made some, some uh, rather controversial statements regarding you know, the existence of uh, um, uh, otherworldly uh, civilizations and the fact that you know, we should be prepared because in all likelihood they are very hostile. Was that just, in, I mean, having you know, read uh, Hawking as you have, what would what you make of that statement? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, th- I think he uh, is better at physics than he is at biology. Um, <laughs> the biologists aren't so afraid, I don't think, of extraterrestrial civilization simply because they don't think any life form would be able to traverse those distances. Uh, so... Um, and then the, I mean, and, and the other aspect of it is when you, when you look at the brief, the brief moment intelligent life has been on this planet in its 3.8 billion years of history or whatever it is, you know, it's just, I mean, it's just a, such a sliver of time uh, so that, you know, while we say, yes, there all, there's all these other uh, solar systems and other planets that are likely out there, but the likelihood of matching the timing of of the evolution of any particular species uh, is is I think uh, statistically very remote, and I think uh, they're probably wasting their money trying to find radio signals from outer space because um, just just because the timing won't work, even if if they anyway, I'm a little off topic. Um, well, no, I, 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 it's all it's all open. For... On the other hand, on the other hand, he's right that there's every reason to believe that if there were such a, uh, uh, a civilization on another planet um, that we contacted, they might very well be hostile. There's no reason to believe they would be be friendly, and uh, they may well be looking for us because they've exhausted their own resources just as we're exhausting ours. As, as one of the top scientists said, uh, you know, in, um, I don't think it was intelligent life was, uh, but it, it, it's a, um, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, just a very dangerous thing. It's just very... Uh, Morally ambiguous, perhaps. Hmm? Morally ambiguous, perhaps. Um, no, I know. I know the word I'm looking for, and it'll come to me probably in a, in a few minutes. But, okay. Um, uh, listen, we'll t- we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll continue our conversation. William B. Davis, uh, memoirs, uh, is where there is smoke. Musings of a cigarette smoking man. You've known him from the X Files, and he's right here on the Conspiracy Show on AM seven forty Zuma Radio. Stay with us. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. And uh, your portal to uh, this uh, program is theconspiracyshow.com, www.theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, and from there, you can get to uh, my website, richardserrett.com, 
where you'll find uh, all the up-to-date information on this radio program, including um, upcoming shows, uh, previous shows, uh, guest info, links to uh, uh, guests' websites, and uh, uh, there's even a a book club section there. And uh, we'll have... Uh, William Davis's book, Where There Is Smoke, up there in uh, in a couple of days. Where There Is Smoke, Musings of a Cigarette-Smoking Man, uh, arguably TV's greatest villain. And um, I, I, I want to get your, your take on the... I mean, you look at the, the lineup of, uh, of, of television shows, and um, obviously littered with uh, a, a paranormal programming, uh, uh, you know, vampires. My babysitter was a vampire in the Vampire Chronicles, and and uh, uh, Grimm, uh, about the Grimm fairy, a modern retelling of the Grimm fairy tales. Uh, as a, as a, as a, a skeptic, as, a, as a, um, an educated, uh, well-read individual, I mean, I know, you know, these are, this is, these are works of fiction and so forth, and they're entertaining, and they, they garner an audience, and that's what it's about. We're in the manufacturing business, after all. We build audiences. But <laughs> w- what is your take on, on um, I mean, from a psychological uh, perspective or a sociological perspective, what do you make of, of what you see on TV these days? It's a, it, it's, it's a good question, and, and, and uh, the one that really puzzles me is the fascination with horror movies. Uh, and the fascination with grisly killing and blood, and uh, I find that very strange. Uh, and I've, you know, I've acted in numerous ones, you know, and I've watched the director's eyes light up as they come to the the, the scene of the great killing, and I've had my throat slashed and blood flying all over the place, and everybody loves this, and I think. Where does this come from? Uh, Does this say anything in particular about humans? But it seems certainly that the younger generation has a way... I mean, they they understand that that it's fiction in in almost a way that we never did because we kind of almost really believed in the stories that we watched, but they know it's it's a movie. And they know, and they and they want to see how it's made, and they want to, uh, and, and they go, "Wow, wasn't that clever? Look what they did." Uh, whereas we, in my generation, we would go, "Oh, look what happened to that poor man." Uh, so there seems to be a, a a kind of separation or a, um, uh, between the, the viewer and, and what what they view in, in some instances. I'm sure that's not always the case, but. But, you know, kind of the opposite of the Coronation Street audience that just really believed these, these people were really doing it and this was all really happening. And if they met the actor on the street, they'd think the actor was the character. Uh, How do you... So, uh, Sorry. where yeah. that comes from, I have no idea, but... Uh, your your acting uh, school. I mean, how do you how do you gauge the uh, the the state of the craft uh, of of actors? Uh, let's say you know the the current crop of, of of stars versus you know we don't have. Uh, it seems to me we don't have like the movie stars that we did say you know back in the uh, the fifties or the sixties when we had the Brandos and the Paul Newmans or the Elizabeth Taylors, uh, who were they were they were both movie stars and they were actors. Um, as someone who teaches the craft, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, well, we still we still have that uh, certainly in the British world. I mean, uh, you know, we certainly have the Ian McKellens and the Judy Denches who who go uh, effortlessly between screen and stage, 
uh, and are in, in every way actors or Derek Jacobi or um, the American film actor seems to be more rooted to film uh, but not necessarily that isn't necessarily a bad thing um, I don't know that we have the star system maybe the way that we did when we had Gregory Peck and, and uh, John Wayne for instance going back you know another distance but that may too also have something to that I heard you refer to yourself the fragmentation of the of the uh, providing of uh, of there's so much more film television webisodes whatever uh, the market is so much more diverse now that for a particular star to stand out but that's more than in terms of the audience perception in terms of the craft um, I, I think the craft is, is, is at as high a level as ever, as far as I can tell. Uh, you've worked uh, uh, with you know people like Brian Dennehy, who's happened. He happens to be one of my favorite uh, actors, and and uh, Martin Sheen, of course. Uh, do you have any uh, anybody that that uh, you really the experience of of working when you shared screen time? That is that um, you, you thought you learned the most from them as an actor. One I would uh, the one I would pick on, and curiously, I didn't actually share screen time. I just shared rehearsal time. Um, this was because I I was hired to be a rehearsal actor. This was many years ago and before X Files uh, for a film called Needful Things, Stephen King thing, um, and. They were going to rehearse for a week and, uh, before they started shooting, and the, the, one of the actors couldn't be there, so I, I was hired to be the rehearsal person. So I did scenes with all the other actors, and I did a scene with Ed Harris. Ah, yes. And, and it was just astonishing, because while the other actors were kind of doing their prepared work with me, he was responding to what I did and I was responding to what he did and the scene just evolved. It just came to amazing life just right there. Um, and that to me was just to kind of, was what I think acting should be. It should, it should be a coming to life as if it had never happened before. I remember that film. If memory serves, Max von Sydow was in that movie, was he not? That's, that's who I was substituting for ah, okay. I was yeah in the rehearsal process yeah now you you from time to time you go to uh, you know these science uh, fiction uh, conventions and so forth um, and of course we've all you know we were all familiar with the the jokes you know William Shatner and uh, the, the Trekkies and but he's come to sort of em- embrace that and, and why not I mean uh, you know he, he uh, great success yeah. from that but is it do you get the same sort of the stripe of of fan coming up and asking you and expecting that you know and you remember the scripts and you remember when you played this scene and so and so and and of course you know that that was a job for you. Uh, does that happen to you? We did get that when we had uh, the actual X File conventions and and when X Files was really in its heyday. Yes, exactly. And we had fans who just knew the knew the show backwards and asked detailed questions and we had no idea about. It. Um, 
but that that has faded, and uh, the fans uh, that come to conventions now are are, are not asking me those. Uh, well, they're not X. What was your? They called themselves X Files with a PH. Yes. Uh, X Files. Um, so they're more ordinary fans, but. Um, but just since you mentioned uh, William Shatner, because uh, uh, while I loved his book, because he just did a memoir recently, as you probably know. Yes. Um, his was very much that. His book was very much uh, the funny things that happened to me on the set uh, uh, of Star Trek. Um, my book is not so much the funny things that happened. It's uh, it's much more. It's much more candid. A much more thoughtful story of my life and my experiences, uh, including on the X Files and, and some. Um, I'm not sure all the people who ever worked on X Files will love everything I said about it, uh, as they won't love everything I said about them in the rest of the book. But um, they're just two different kinds of books. Uh, not that you asked me that question, but I just offer it anyway. And of course, now uh, uh, William has taken uh, his one-man show to Broadway. I think it's uh, it's William Shatner's world, and we're just living in it, or something like that. Uh, but what is he's a survivor? He is a survivor. Well, really, you know, because I remember him, um, and this was a part of his book that I was really fascinated to read. Was in uh, I remember him as a television actor in the 1950s when yes. I was. A, a boy, I was just a little younger than he is, and I remember him playing, you know, uh, roles at Stratford and on CBC Television. When CBC Television in the fifties used to still do plays. Yes. Um, Did we lose William? Are you there, William? No. I'm oh, okay. Right sorry, we just yeah, we're. Uh, we're just fading in a little out there. Okay, so you you and uh, did you ever cross paths with with William professionally, Bill Shatner? Uh, not really. No, I've, I've been I've been in the same room because <laughs> we've been at the same convention, or I've been at um, some uh, a couple of different events, but we've never actually talked. I don't think. And certainly, I've never worked with him. No. But you've maintained very much, you know, your Canadian identity. You you um, you continue to live in Vancouver. I guess that was part of the appeal. I guess uh, for doing uh, the X Files is that you didn't have to go to L.A. to do you know episodic television. Well, I did. I did not at first because the uh, first five years were shot in Vancouver, uh, but the last four were shot in L.A. So I did, in fact. Um, go back and forth to L.A. as they needed me in the later years, uh, which was fine. I mean, I was happy to do that. Um, I don't think I would have been cast if they had not shot in Vancouver. And initially, they would have looked for a, an American actor in Los Angeles, I'm sure. But... So, I mean, has yes. has and, your... And, and, um, and my roots, of course, are in Toronto or in Ontario, which is where you are. I yes. So I mean, has I mean, you you you've you've held steadfastly to your Canadian roots. Um, I mean, I guess it's is it a, has it been a trade off? I mean, have you, you've you've have you lost out on roles or you because you don't want them to to leave? Um, quite possibly, uh, quite possibly. Uh, certainly, you know, I had agents and people interested in in working with me in Los Angeles if I would come and live in Los Angeles. 
but I wasn't prepared to go and live in Los Angeles. I was prepared to go down as needed, but I wasn't prepared to to move there. I mean, which is kind of the opposite of what my my uh, university friend Donald Sutherland did, because he just moved his whole family there at an early stage in his career and just said, "Okay, here we are. We'll take a chance." Well, how were you? How were you able to resist, or why did you resist the you know the siren call of uh, of, of Hollywood and and um, and choose to dis- and you know to remain here? Uh, well, I don't know that I heard the siren call that definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps if I had it, it might have altered my opinion. Um, but it was a, it was a sort of a faint call. And it was like, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. Um, and I've got good things happening here. I had personal things happening in Canada. Uh, and uh, I've also had a long commitment to Canadian film, Canadian theater, uh, Canadian training, um, so in the, uh, Canadian life. My my actual real moment of decision came many years earlier, and it wasn't between Hollywood and uh, Canada. It was between uh, it was between Britain and Canada, because I was at the, working as an assistant director at the National Theatre of Great Britain, and Albert Finney had asked me to be his assistant when he directed his first movie. And that was some some months hence. And while that was all unfolding, the National Theatre School of Canada phoned me and asked me to come and work there and asked me to make a decision in four days, I think, and to come in two weeks. So I had to make a rapid decision about whether to continue my career, which was going pretty well in the UK, or come back to Canada, which was where I really wanted to be. So I came back to Canada at that time to Montreal, which, of course, had my favorite hockey team and great skiing. So uh. There you go. Listen, uh, William, we'll take one final time out. Are you good to just hang in for a few more, a few more moments? Yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah. Terrific. All right, William Davis, Where There Is Smoke, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. And perhaps uh, you've got questions or comments for TV's most famous villain. You can get on board and join the conversation at 416 Three six zero zero seven forty and toll free from just about anywhere. Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. To talk to Richard, call four one six three six zero zero seven forty or toll free in Ontario at one eight six six seven forty. Four seven forty. Canadian actor William B. Davis is uh, with us here on the Conspiracy Show. His memoirs, "Where There Is Smoke: Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man," there's a great uh, a chapter in here, William, about uh, when an actor has to deal with uh, a poorly written dialogue. And uh, the chapter, the, the the chapter title is "The Worst Line Ever." Can you tell us a little bit about how you, as an actor, uh, you know, deal with with uh, with bad dialogue? Well, well, that that chapter in particular uh, relates to uh, a line that I had to say. Uh, at the time, I was trying to get a divorce in the 1960s, uh, uh, when you had to 
you had to prove adultery, even though you know adultery hadn't been com committed. You had to pretend you proved it in order to get a divorce. It was in order to get a divorce. So I had to say a really stupid line in front of a hired detective. But um, but to answer your question, uh, normally what one does is one tries to find. Well, I, I used to use the example. Just imagine that the, the, the script has been written by by creative genius, and so however unlikely this looks to you when you read the line, imagine that there's a creative genius behind it, and there really is a reason, um, and that gets you really looking. And there might actually be a, a reason. There might be a, an, a, an idea, a motivation, a, a um, backstory that you hadn't yet thought of that actually makes the line work. Um, maybe there isn't one, but maybe you can invent one that'll make the line work. Um, but finally, it may just be a bad line. <laughs> Um, and then if you're in a good situation, you can actually say, hopefully you can say to the director or whatever, maybe this line isn't really a good line. Um, but you have, to, you have to be patient about that because the line might not be the problem. The line might be that you, you the actor's backstory, is not quite accurate. Um, but that's, that's so much what acting is. Acting is, is wanting to say what you're supposed to say at the moment. In other words, the uh, way I sometimes describe it is if you could do anything you want to do when you come into a scene and you have freedom to do anything you want, what you want to do should be to say these words. Um, not because you've memorized them, not because um, you like the way they sound, but because that's what you as a character in this situation want to say. Right, yeah. right. And... Yeah, that is that is your that is your job uh, to bring, as you point uh, point out, those little black marks to life. Uh, there's another exactly. there's yeah, another great exactly. uh, chapter, and you discuss um, you know your, your moving to uh, to London, England, uh, back I guess in the early '60s. And um, there's a j joke there. You talk about uh, that uh, Britain's explaining to American tourists, explaining the political system in England. Uh, well, we have a Labour Party here that you would call socialist, and we have a conservative party you here you would call socialist. Uh, and, uh, you know, you point out how today it's, uh, we have a, now we have a, a Tory party which is conservative and a Labour party which is conservative. Are you a, are you a political, are you a political animal? Um, I wouldn't as far as to say I'm a political animal. I'm, I'm certainly uh, political, uh, politically aware. Uh, I tend to, I tend to lean to the left, but, uh, and I sometimes been a member of the NDP and sometimes not, but uh, um, but um, my, my my strongest kind of political concern now has to do with the survival of of the, of the planet, of the survival of people, of humans, and the resource depletion and climate change in particular. And and uh, I'm terrified that we're just not dealing with. Uh, this this uh, impending threat. Uh, uh, how do, politically, that's important. How do you see uh, Canada, uh, its place in the world now? I mean, we're 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 now seen sort of as this uh, this stable, a safe haven. Uh, the world around us seems to be uh, sort of falling apart. We have the debt crisis in Europe. We have. Uh, 
you know, the similar situation in, 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 the, in the U.S. Um, how do you see our, our role in the world and our, our current standing? Uh, well, we've had some good fortune economically, um, and so, so we've certainly survived some storms in that regard. But in terms of the world, we're a pariah. Um, uh, in terms of uh, the environmental world, Canada ranks at the bottom uh, now. Uh, we used to be considered a force for good and, and, and help. We're now considered the biggest obstacle, um, probably the biggest obstacle, uh, even though we're a small country, we're the biggest obstacle to, to action on climate change. Um, uh, we've become uh, hard-nosed, we've become in, unequal, we've become uh, ungenerous, um, uh, Canada's role in the world has suffered dramatically in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, obviously, obviously That's what it, I read. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, obviously, in the um, in in terms of uh, you know the, the the public consciousness, 2012 is a is a big year. We have the Mayan prophecy. Plus, on top of that, you know, we have uh, a lot of doom and gloom types that are feeding into it. We have. Uh, movies that are reflective of that that mindset, and then we have what's really happening on the ground. I mean, we have the situation in the Middle East, and and uh, uh, as I say, what's going on in Europe and so forth. Environmental degradation, as you say. What I, I mean, are you are you hopeful uh, for the future? Uh, I, I, do you have you have grandchildren? I, I presume. Are you are you helping? I'm not hopeful for them at all. No, no I'm very worried for them. Um, uh, I'm extremely worried. Um, my my outlook is very pessimistic, and uh, we have to we have to make a dramatic change in how how we how we energize the planet. And we have to make it very very quickly, or it will be too late. The the, le- the levels of carbon once once we once we start to release the carbon that's locked in the tundra and the carbon that's locked at the bottom of the ocean, there's nothing we can do to stop it. Uh, It will become impossible for humans to change it. The accelerating heating uh, will be out of control. Um, I I did a... uh, I read James Lovelock's book uh, on the subject. He thinks thinks there will only be about 10% of the current human population still alive at the end of this century. He's a scientist. He's not a doom and gloomer. He's a very cheerful man. Ten percent. So about uh, 600 million of us. That is... Something uh, like that. That's pretty (laughs) dire, to be sure. Uh, There's a... a, uh, a trend, sort of a trend uh, analyst, uh, trends analyst, futurist, uh, uh, Gerald Salente, had a, had a wonderful quote, uh, said that nothing but a total repudiation of our current institutions uh, is going to be able to pull, you know, we're going to be able to pull ourselves out of the fire unless we totally repudiate all of our, our current institutions and practices. What are your thoughts on that? Well, since I think that's unlikely to happen, um, I'm I'm hopeful that there's other solutions. Uh, I know I had a colleague uh, 
and a conference who thinks that uh, a revitalized communism as opposed to capitalism worldwide is the solution. And, and while that might be, it's not going to happen. Uh, so I think we have to try and see how we can make it work, how we can make the changes we need. But somehow we have to... Uh, and we have to diminish the control of, of private money. I, every once in a while, I hope, that we, because, you know, we all blame the corporations and we say it's corporate power and blah, blah, blah. But corporations are still run by people. There's still a person who makes that decision. And that person has children and that person has grandchildren. And maybe one day those people will go, oh, my gosh. We have to change what we're doing. I don't care what it costs in terms of money or profit. We have to change what we're doing. Uh, that's my hope, but uh, I don't know if it's a, a good one, but I think it's more likely than that we can change all our institutions in the time frame that we have. Yeah, it may be our last best hope. Yeah, we have to change the hearts and minds uh, of the people that run the institutions, not the institutions Listen, uh, William, congratulations on uh, your memoir, Where There is Smoke, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, and um, uh, any other uh, projects? I know you're working on a film, The Singularity Principle, down in the Bahamas. Any other uh, projects uh, that you'd like to, uh, to to make mention of? Um, yeah, I am, I'm doing a... Um, it's, it's not a big role as yet, but it might become one, uh, on a pilot for a series called Out of Time, which is looking pretty interesting. Um, shooting that in a week or so. Um, uh, then I'm, I'm doing some work a bit later with my school, um, doing some uh, science fiction conventions, uh, uh, one in Dublin, perhaps, in the fall. Um, so keeping, keeping things happening. All right. Well, uh, I wish you um, uh, good luck with your current project and uh, a safe return to Canada and nothing but good powder on the ski slopes. Oh, thank you. All right, William, thank you. A real pleasure to speak to you. Okay, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, cigarette smoking man, uh, William Davis. And when we come back, UFO historian Richard Dolan, who will drop some bombshells. Hope you're part of that. Back with more in a moment, The Conspiracy Show. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. And uh, just a reminder that next week on the program, that's Sunday, January the 29th, a very special program, uh, we have uh, George Inescu, of course, the much-beloved host of Big Band Sunday Night, celebrating like 63 years in the business. He will be 
undergoing a past life regression live on the air beginning at 11 o'clock along with uh, Debbie Papadakis, our past life regression therapist. George stopped me in the hall just before the show and uh, because he went down to see Debbie just to do sort of a pre-interview to see if he was even a, a good subject uh, to go under a regression. And they had, he had, a mind-blowing transformative experience. And uh, I'm not going to say anything more, but uh, stay tuned. Jan 29th, next Sunday, George Ginescu, live on the air, undergoing a past life regression. I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about uh, my next guest. He is, I think, without a doubt, the world's foremost UFO historian and uh, the author of a number of um, seminal works in this field, of course, uh, UFO and the national, UFOs and the National Security State, uh, that's a two-parter, and, uh, of course, uh, AD, After Disclosure, uh, The People's Guide to Life After Contact. And uh, before we get him on, the, uh, on Skype, live from Rochester, New York, I'll also say hello to a dear friend, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Service. Hey, Victor, how are you? Good to be with you. Good to be with you. How are you doing? Hey, and thanks again to uh, you and uh, Lori and uh, Quigley That's right. for a, yeah. uh, a wonderful uh, <laughs> repast at your house a couple of weeks ago. That was a great time. It was so good to have you there with us, the whole oh. family. And the kids were enthralled, weren't they? It's about time. Yes. It's only been like 10 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> we finally did it, yeah. All right. Uh, Richard Dolan, how are you? Oh, uh, very well. And thanks for having me on, Richard and uh, Victor. It's uh, good to be on here with you as well. Let's, uh, Victor, why don't you give us the details? Because, Richard, yeah. you're coming to uh, these here parts in Toronto uh, shortly, and uh, Victor's got all the details, so tell us about that visit. Yeah, he's coming to Toronto uh, on uh, Saturday, January the 28th, and he'll be speaking at the, uh, the Northern District Library here in Toronto. It's in North York. That's at 40 Orchard View Boulevard here in Toronto on the second floor in the lecture halls upstairs on the second floor. And uh, that's once again January the 28th, and it'll begin at 12.30 p.m. And the, uh, the host of that event will be the Alien UFOs and Outer Space and Inner Space uh, Meetup Group. And the easiest way to register for this event, you have to register for the event, is to send an email to the following email address. I'll give it to you, okay? It's Alien Majestic all one word, alienmajestic at gmail.com. And the host of the event, the organizer, Chris Ruschak, will get back to you with a confirmation email. So we hope to see as many of you out to see and listen to probably one of the finest minds in the UFO research community, uh, Richard Dolan. Richard, these these little startup meetup groups, uh, I mean, they're spreading like wildfire. I mean, we have the disclosure movement. That's one thing. But then you have mm -hmm. just ordinary citizens that want to know more. There's a real hunger. Are you getting a sense that this is, there's this real groundswell of these uh, sort of unofficial meetup groups that are trying to reach out and connect with people like you? Well, yes, I would say that's that's exactly right, Richard. Um, now, here in Rochester, where I live, we have, uh, I really believe, that we have one of the most active, best meetup groups around anywhere uh, for the UFO topic. We've been going for about four years. Uh, every month, we, we meet once a month for about three hours. We have 50, usually 50 folks every month. Um, we've had more at times. We jam, uh, pack the um, Barnes & Noble, uh, one of them in Rochester has a nice conference room that they let us use. And we are there. Uh, we'll have 
meetings uh, on all the topics related to this field. We have guest speakers, as we did uh, just last month, a few weeks ago, when Victor uh, Victor Vigiani came down to to talk with us and gave a great lecture. Um, we have a number of our own uh, members doing lectures. I myself have given quite a few. And, uh, and then we have guest uh, uh, call-ins. Uh, in other words, we'll do like a, an audio uh, speakerphone interview with some of the, the greatest luminaries in the field. We've had Stanton Friedman, Linda Moulton Howe, Nick Pope, George Norrie, George Knapp, uh, Angela Joyner, and so many other well-known uh, researchers, well-known names in the field have called in and uh, – done an hour or 90 minute long interview with our group it's incredible but now around the country uh, because i'm very interested in this now and the whole concept of the meetup is uh is a beautiful way to use the internet to for people to connect in other words uh the the whole trend of the last 20 years is for all of us to go digital and to sort of almost isolate ourselves behind our our computer screen but what the meetup uh idea is all about is for like-minded people, whether it's for dog grooming or UFOs or anything else. Or overthrowing to, a Middle to, Eastern dictator. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> to find, to find um, like-minded people in their area so that they can all like physically get together. And uh, there's quite a few UFO meetup groups throughout uh, the U.S. and Canada. And, um, uh, and I just, I think it's... Um, it, it satisfies a, a definite need. You, put, you mentioned the word hunger. I think that's the right word. I mean, there are UFO groups uh, in the U.S. We've got MUFON, which uh, I think doesn't really quite cut it, to be honest with you, in terms of satisfying uh, people's need regularly to get together. There are some excellent MUFON groups. I want to make that clear. But, but by and large, I think most of them are in the doldrums. Uh, most of them don't really have... Uh, really exciting, regular activities, whereas the meetup phenomenon I'm finding does. Um, here in Rochester, the, the Rochester meetup group is, no offense to the local MUFON folks, but this is where the action's at in terms of uh, having really involved, motivated people wanting to learn more about the UFO topic. You're, you're, a, you're an historian, which is interesting talking about, when, I think when a lot of people uh, hear the terms UFO or ETs and, and visitation, they're thinking about the future, and here you are sort of rear view mirroring it to a certain extent, although now... <laughs> in, yeah, in, it's kind of true. In, in, in AD, uh, your book AD, After Disclosure, you're, you're talking right. about what life is going to be after contact. How would you characterize... Uh, you know, this, let's say 2012, uh, everyone, of course, is, is very interested in, in, the, in this year uh, for, for a right. number of reasons, the Mayan prophecy and so forth, and maybe how UFOs might uh, be uh, connected to that. But how do you look at this year leading up to the uh, disclosure sort of event horizon, if you will, how, as an historian? Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, will, you know, honestly tell you, I'm still formulating a, a lot of my thoughts on this topic, Richard. Um, I do believe very strongly that uh, the UFO phenomenon. The more I look into this, the more I do realize that the human mind, human consciousness, as uh, we can say, is um, is a really is such a key factor in this. And what I mean is. This phenomenon, these other beings, there are beings who are here, they are interacting with us, and they are doing so in such a way that is altering human 
awareness. Uh, for example, when you speak to anyone who has had uh, what appear to be abduction or encounter experiences with these other entities, uh, typically you find that they, that they are changed. Uh, they can be traumatized, for sure. The, a lot of the experiences described are, um, are certainly traumatic. But then you start looking at the long term of how someone reacts to this, and you find frequently they themselves have developed a higher awareness of themselves in the universe and, uh, and in relationship to the Earth. Certainly many people who we can call abductees or experiencers uh, develop a a strong connection to um, preserving the natural world. You find this frequently. Um, and also, I think, develop uh, certain types of spiritual, um, greater spiritual consciousness and awareness. So that, in other words, I, I would suggest, I'm not the first person to suggest this, that, that this phenomenon is affecting human consciousness. Now, that said, let's look forward to 2012. Um, you know, there, the, the December 21st, 2012, let's look at the Mayan calendar first of all. This really is an extraordinary date. Uh, it isn't, I mean, we like to joke that this is simply when the Mayans ran out of room on their stone. It really is not, it's not that simple. Uh, nor did the Mayans see this date as the end of time. Mayan view of, of uh, time was cyclical. It wasn't linear the way uh, the typical Western mind might work. Uh, really what the Mayan calendar saw, this is based on um, um, roughly on the, the great year, which is uh, 25,900 uh, some odd years, uh, broken into five uh, smaller groups. And, and this is the end of that great year that is the, related to the precession of the Earth. So then at December 21, 2012, according to this Mayan calendar, the world kind of gets reset. Uh, the cycle, it's like the, the odometer going to zero and you're kind of cycling through again. Uh, they didn't have a belief, as far as we can tell, of a linear development of time, but rather it was a cyclical. As one uh, scholar on uh, 2012 put it, this isn't the end of time, it's the center of time. Mm -hmm. And um, so now with that said, uh, what does it mean for us? What does 2012 mean for us? And that's a harder question for me to answer. Uh, one thing that I can tell you has, has uh, disturbed me as we approach this date is the endless number of predictions that uh, self-appointed prophets of 2012 like to tell us. And uh, I just think, you know, on the one hand, we're buffeted by fear, and on the other hand, by fantasy. I don't think that either is a particularly helpful state of mind to be in. Uh, so predictions, for instance, that either, you know, we're going to go through a, a worse wor version of what Y2K was supposed to be and the world's going to start to collapse around us, or on the other hand, that we will ascend to a higher density of consciousness and existence and our problems will go away, I think is also really not a very helpful way to look at this. Um, I think... The, the long term of human history, you jump ahead 100, 200, 1,000 years from now, and this is what I would say, that when those people look back on human history, they very well might say that humans 
really went through a major transformation around this time. And truthfully, 2012 could be as good a year as any to, to pin that down. Keep in mind, when the Roman Empire ended in the year 476, people didn't exactly realize that, hey, the Roman Empire ended. You know, Honorius is dead, and this new guy is in charge, and no one really connected the dots until centuries later when they realized that that's when the Roman line ended. The world continued in a very gradual way, as it had been going for some time. Um, nothing uh, in human history really turns on a dime. That's just not how we operate. And the same, I think, will be with whatever humanity's transformation uh, that I think is underway. All right, I'm going to... Sorry, Richard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this on a dime and, and uh, we'll head on into a break. On the other side, we'll, uh, we'll get Victor Vigiani in here, who I know had a, um, a quite um, a fascinating presentation at your meetup uh, last month to do with CIA mind control. I know he has questions for you as well. I want to I hear a little bit about what Victor had to say down there and get your reaction to that as it pertains to the UFO issue. And we'll do all, all that on the other side. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani in studio from Z-Land News Service and UFO historian, author, Richard Dolan, on the line via Skype from Rochester, New York. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back. Richard Dolan, the author of After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After Contact, and of course, uh, UFOs and the National Security State. Uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Services here. Victor, jump on in. Yeah, I just wanted to bring something up, uh, Rich, regarding in, in, in AD, you made a couple of statements, and I read uh, thoroughly uh, some of your reflections on the fact that secrecy uh, regarding all of this um, is on its last legs, that it can't last forever. And it's almost like there's a, a bubble ready to be uh, burst in, in the context of what you just said regarding 2012. And the, the whole historical nature of the, the way the secrecy element has worked against uh, the resolution, I'm not going to say disclosure, but the resolution of the UFO issue. How do you see this whole idea of secrecy gradually waning and becoming almost, almost archaic right. at, at some point? It's, it's, well, it's a great question, Victor, and uh, I, I may be writing about the future, but that doesn't mean that I have an infallible crystal ball. Mm -hmm. I, I would... Uh, suggests that there are a couple of probable or at least most likely ways that this secret will end. Uh, I've, I've often felt that as, in, as impossible as it seems for the UFO secret to end, because it has gone very successfully for such a long time, I still have always felt it is inevitable that it will end. And I also think that it's inevitable within the lifetimes of most of us who are, uh, or most people who are listening to this right now. Um, and simply because the world is is not going to be stuck in a 2012 holding pattern indefinitely. We're moving, we're zooming into the future. Uh, let's look technologically first, uh, which is, I think, the most obvious uh, kind of change that we've been experiencing in the last generation and, and more. Look at our world of 1950. Look at our world of 1990, just a generation ago. Uh, the world of 2000, even, just a decade ago, we're already moving 
uh, into directions that were unimaginable just in prior years in terms of how we are able to communicate with each other globally, how we are able to share information. Um, I pointed out a number of times about something like WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks didn't exist 10 years ago because it couldn't exist 10 years ago because we didn't have the global uh, uh, infrastructure to allow for an organization like WikiLeaks really to function. Now, now it exists. Um, and there will be other organizations that will be uh, continuing to spring up uh, that will also be, I think, leaking out information. Uh, now, it's it's not all on one side of the fence. You've got the, the powers that be, which are very interested in controlling the Internet and controlling our our flow of information. But the fact is, as I see it, this cat is out of the bag, and uh, it's going to be very, very problematic and I think ultimately impossible for um, for the, the genie to get back into the bottle, so to speak. So we're in a world in which information is flowing. It's going to continue to flow. Uh, on top of that, we're in a world in which computing power is uh, continuing to increase according to Moore's law and probably beyond. So that is uh, really computational capability is essentially, I guess, doubling, roughly speaking, every 18 months or even maybe every 12 months uh, in the consumer market. All of which means that uh, for computing uh, experts, we're probably approaching a point within another uh, 15 to 20 years in which uh, people's personal computers will have uh, the computational capability equal to one human brain. In other words, the computer will be, r roughly speaking, as intelligent as a person. And that's just before they then surpass us uh, with future generations of computing. So in other words... We are soon going to be surpassed as the dominant form of intelligence in our civilization. Uh, then you take uh, into effect the um, take into account the likely changes that we are making to ourselves, not just in terms of uh, our inter interfacing with things like the web through probable implants, but also through genetic engineering, which is right around the bend. So what I'm saying is that in the long term, you look at humanity 100 years from now, and I think it's fair to say it, it will probably for us be close to unrecognizable. Uh, I ask myself, in that kind of a world, with that kind of an infrastructure, can I honestly believe that we will have made no headway toward resolving the UFO issue in a public realm? And I think, no, it will be resolved. And then that leads me to ask, the question, well, how then or when do we go from point A to point B? When does it happen? When does that changeover happen? And in a sense, that's what really informs a lot of the thought behind AD after disclosures. How is it going to happen? Um, so I think that one event could be a leak, uh, so like along a WikiLeaks type of um, event where something important comes out uh, that becomes difficult to deny and causes a snowball effect. I also think... Uh, it is entirely possible that we have a kind of a mass sighting that occurs and becomes very difficult to explain away. Now, the, the problem with that, as anyone knows, is that we already have an abundance of UFO video on YouTube. Uh, most of that is, uh, I mean, I think some of it's probably very good and legitimate, but a lot of it isn't, and we have a very difficult time in um, differentiating what's what's good and what isn't. But I do believe, uh, and this is 
not entirely a matter of faith here. I, I think that there's good reason to think that we technologically are going to get to a point where we have definite capabilities of recording and then sharing um, information and sightings about UFOs. And uh, at some point, I really think it's likely that there will be a sighting that hits the sweet spot, so to speak, and uh, and makes it makes it through. Or just like in a hockey game, you know, you have shots on goal, shots on goal, save, save, save. Suddenly, though, if you get enough shots on goal, someone's going to score. I'm and wondering if, if the uh, actual... The actual official disclosure, the moment of disclosure from some government official, will will ultimately be anticlimactic. It's it, the rest of us will be sitting there going, "Duh." It will. Um, I think that's right it, because it will only happen when it's forced. Uh, the powers that be, the president of the United States or any other political leader, is not voluntarily ever going to give this up. First of all, I don't think that uh, most of the knowledge resides in any of the official political institutions. And so um, a president will have to be briefed and uh, will be forced to give some information. And, and here, in fact, I think is where uh, the battle really begins. It's at the moment of disclosure because I think we can all assume that any disclosure that is made on this will will uh, not be an entirely truthful one, and it could very it could very well be deceptive um, for a whole a variety of reasons. What if some of the truth that's known is is uh, unsettling or unpleasant? Uh, what if it involves you know hiding up a lot of criminal activity uh, by government entities? Obviously, so it's going to be a very long process once that disclosure is made to continue to get all of the truth out. The difference, though, will be that now this topic will be fair game in the public venue, which for the most part really isn't. Uh, certainly, you're not going to go into Washington, D.C. or Ottawa or any other national capital and um, you know, openly demand your elected political representative to uh, disclose the truth on UFOs and uh, you know, not expect them just to run far and fast from, from you. Uh, no one wants to deal with that issue, and they'll right. only deal with it when they are absolutely forced. I'm sitting here listening to you, um, sir, and the, the word historian has been used by my colleagues sitting to my left here, um, but I'm sitting here listening to a visionary. Uh, when did you, I'm going to ascribe that, that descriptor to you, when do you think you became or left the shoes of a historian, if you ever did, and became this, and I, I'm going to use the word again, visionary, because I really feel that, Richard. You, you're, you're talking in those, in those degrees now of, of looking ahead with a vision. When did you make that transition? Well, that's, wow, thank you for, uh, for commenting on this, Victor. I, I don't feel, strictly speaking, um, the way that I felt, uh, say, 25 years ago when I was really th throwing myself into the discipline of history and trying to learn everything I could about how to do it right. Uh, that is my foundation. That's my training. It always will be, and I'll never, I'll never abandon it. But uh, we all grow. We all, we all, um, hopefully, if we're doing doing things right, we try to grow and to um, uh, stretch ourselves. Um, I've I've always been someone I've who's never been comfortable inside a inside a small box. Uh, I recall distinctly back in my uh, days as a, uh, a historian in training. Uh, always feeling like I wanted a little more, 
out of this, um, that I was never satisfied. I had a conversation with a professor of mine back in my undergraduate days who years later said the same thing to me, that uh, he said, you never were satisfied with the, the standard academic, um, you know, with, with the simple, straightforward world of academia. You always wanted more. I didn't realize that. Um, but I would say in the last uh, five years or so, one thing that triggered it, I, I'll never forget this. I was at a conference, and I was talking about what I was then calling the challenges of disclosure. You know, it turns out I look back over a lot of my lectures. I, I've been talking about disclosure since around 2003, about 10 years, and I didn't even realize. Um, but I think around 07, 08, I was at a, doing a lecture, and someone asked me, point blank in a in a crowded room Richard Dolan if you were president of the United States how would you handle disclosure and I don't think I had a very good answer at that time but it got me thinking it really got me thinking about the practical logistical difficulties of what would really be involved and that that to me kind of kick-started me into this direction uh, it was a series of conversations I had uh, after that with uh, a man who became a very good friend of mine, Bryce Zabel. Uh, we ended up co-authoring AD After Disclosure. Uh, that really made all of this concrete because it turned out he had the very, very uh, – he was moving in a very similar direction to what I was in. But I don't know if there was a single moment, Victor, that I can, I can think of. Um, but I, I can tell you my whole life I've been what I would call a seeker. Uh, I'm someone who I've never been satisfied with uh, truth as I've come to understand it at any point in my life. I've always been aware that uh, the moment I am convinced that I know it all is the moment that I'm, I've really failed as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a student of life right. because of a, we never know it all. Yeah, sort of a transition. Yeah, and I, I certainly hope that mm-hmm. if uh, we have a conversation like this in 10 years, uh, 10 years from now, that I – I certainly hope that I'm in a different place intellectually and uh, in every other way. Who wants to just keep spinning their wheels and ending up in the same place let me year get a, after year? Not, let, certainly not me. Let me um, get a, a quick response from you this, on this, Richard. We'll go into a break. When we come back, I do want to ask Victor about his uh, speech down in, in, in Rochester, his presentation regarding CIA mind control in the UFO field. But my question to you before the break is this. Uh, again, we go back to the, the, um, the, the title of historian. When whatever that date was, when this UFO issue left the public domain and went private, uh, I mean, are you able to, when you're sifting through government documents, uh, FOIA documents, is there a demarcation line where the trail sort of runs cold and then you can say, okay, August 1949, basically Truman handed everything over to the G, to General Electric or, or to whomever. I mean, are you able to do that uh, in any way? No, not, not uh, to my satisfaction. Uh, I've, I've got some, some ideas about when I think the primary transition occurred, and we can maybe explore that after the break, if you like. But uh, in terms of, first of all, FOIA documents, that is Freedom of Information Act documents, um, are kind of a skimpy... Uh, they're skimpier than than we think. There's a lot of them out there, 
but there's really only a handful, maybe a hundred or so, that are really, really good in terms of uh, UFO data. Now, fortunately for us, they are more than good enough to prove that there's an interest, that there's a cover-up, so that we know we've got something. But the fact is, within the United States, Freedom of Information Act has been uh, hitting rough times for many, many years. Uh, had it had its golden era during the presidency of Jimmy Carter. That's a long time ago. Uh, more than half of all of our FOIA documents that are available to this day that we have on UFOs, more than half of them came from that four-year period when Jimmy Carter was president of the United States. So uh, that's great for the Carter years. That's really bad for the, the, all the subsequent years. And uh, yanking some of these documents out of the government, uh, it's not easy. But maybe that should be a clue to us, too. Uh, so that, in other words, um, you know, the, there are there's a lot less that's been coming out. I I still firmly believe it's in, almost entirely because of the above top secret nature of of this, and it's just not amenable to a FOIA request. But it's also true that um, I at least it's true that I believe that this secret's been privatized to a large extent. I don't know how much time we have before the break, but I'll gladly explore that with you. Uh, why, why, don't we, like. why don't we? Why uh, don't we? We'll we'll break here. We'll come back and we'll pick up on that, and then we'll get to uh, to Victor and his presentation in Rochester. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Service, and Richard Dolan, the author of A.D. After Disclosure: The People's Guide to Life After Contact, and uh, we'll also remind you about his upcoming speaking engagement here in Toronto on Jan twenty eighth. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are back. Richard Dolan is with us via Skype. What a wonderful piece of technology. It's, it's just like he's in the, in the room with us. Uh, <laughs> the author of AD After Disclosure and uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Service. Uh, Victor, give us the details on uh, Richard's upcoming engagement. Sure, very quickly again. Uh, January 28th, that's a Saturday at 12.30 p.m. at the North York District Library. That's 40 Orchard View Boulevard. It's in Toronto in the Young and Eglinton area. And uh, you can only attend if you register for the event. And the best way to register is to send an email to the following address. The email is alienmajestic, that's alienmajestic, all one word, at gmail.com. And the group organizer for the event, uh, Chris Ruschak, will get back to you with a confirmation email. That's January the 28th and Saturday, 1230. All right. And I'll get that up on the website um, very quickly. Uh, now, Richard, you had a few more thoughts on sort of the privatization of, of uh, UFO technology and the whole right. UFO uh, question. And then uh, we'll get you to, to, to finish up with that. Yeah, I'll try to, to do as well as I can in a concise way. Um, Really, we have we have uh, different ways of trying to understand this. One is through uh, leaks, because really, let, let's face it. First of all, the UFO phenomenon does not have any kind of true official standing within the U.S. political system. After all, just a few months ago, the Obama White House uh, made the, the first ever explicit statement about UFOs that any White House uh, administration has ever made like an official policy uh, position on it, which is that, well, there are no UFOs. Um, so if, if you go on the record as saying that there are no UFOs, um, you know, there, 
there's certainly not going to just allow uh, researchers to do a detailed official study of the um, the bureaucratic structure of the UFO cover-up. Uh, so what what are we left with? We're left with leaks, and we're left with some inference, and we have to do the best we can in that context. Uh, some of the leaks and statements are, um, I think, worth listening to. Uh, one stems from the uh, late Ben Rich, who uh, many people in the UFO field have heard his name. Ben Rich was the uh, head of Lockheed's famous Skunk Works division um, back in the 80s and 90s. He died in uh, 1995, I believe. Ben Rich made a number of statements about UFOs and ET shortly before he died. Uh, no need to go into all the details here, but essentially he boiled it down to saying, it's it's real, uh, and you know there's it's a very important topic, and the people really have no right to know because it'll blow their mind. Um, he stated, um, and an, a friend of his, John Andrews, who was also associated with uh, uh, work with Lockheed, stated that the uh, predecessor of Ben Rich, Kelly Johnson. Uh, who was the developer of the U-2 spy plane, had stated that the UFO cover-up really got transferred from the U.S. presidency to an international board or an international group around the time of the Nixon administration, that is, around 1969-1970. That doesn't mean that the U.S. president is irrelevant but it does mean that the U.S. president isn't the only guy in town who, who's going to have something to say about this. Uh, now, let's, let's look at the uh, – and I'm, I'm focusing on the U.S. system here because, A, I know it best, and, B, I still believe it's, this, it's the most important element in, the, in maintaining this cover-up. In the U.S. Uh, classified world, there have been a few studies, not enough, but a few, that indicate how that the U.S. classified systems become – completely privatized and dominated by private entities. Uh, this is what I'm, we call special access programs, the primordial black budget programs. Um, the few studies that have really looked at this in any detail have all agreed that it is the private contractors, the private money that has the dominant hand in running special access programs. And by the way, the U.S. president, it is impossible for any U.S. president to be on top of all of the special access programs that are being run. The president does not have enough hours in a day uh, to, to manage them, and, and also presidents need deniability. Just to, and just to further in, in, in underscore that point, I, I, I've been told that uh, the head of security for the Joint Chiefs of Staff once got wind of one of these programs that was in his in, within his uh, department. He called a number that he was given to be read in. Uh, in other words, he wanted details of the program, and he was told, um, basically, you have no uh, right to know, no need well, to know. Let, Click. let me give you that story, because actually I know this story in detail, and I spoke to that man. Uh, that man, uh, this is 1997, is when all of this happened, and that man was Admiral Thomas uh, Wilson, who was, uh, his position at the Joint Chiefs was known as J-2, as head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So you're, you're right, uh, fundamentally there. And what happened was that uh, astronaut Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, and uh, medical doctor Stephen Greer, who's a UFO activist for years, were able, in April of 1997, to have a meeting with Wilson. 
who was head of uh, intelligence for the Joint Chiefs. Not a bad coup when you really think about mm-hmm. it. And they and they went to Wilson and they said, the UFO cover-up is out of control, sir. It is dominated by rogue private entities. Here are the numbers of these programs. You can look this up. We urge you on behalf of the American people to get control over this by the government, not by these rogue entities. That's essentially what they told Wilson. Now, to confirm this, I can tell you, I asked Edgar Mitchell. uh, I asked Stephen Greer. I spoke to yet another person who is friends with Edgar Mitchell, who has very high-level clearances and has high-level connections. He knew about it. Uh, He knew a lot about it. And then I found Thomas Wilson who was retired and working, uh, retired from the Joint Chiefs and working as a senior vice president with a major defense contractor dealing with, with space issues, incidentally. So I got Wilson. I had to, I had to be a little bit deceptive in uh, contacting him, to be honest with you, because the one thing I was not going to do is, uh, is telegraph this to Thomas Wilson and say, oh, yeah, I want to ask you, sir, about your UFO meeting and your black budget meeting where you got denied access. But I did want to talk to him, and I did plan essentially to ambush this man. Felt a little bad about it, but look, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So I get him on the phone. He was very excited about talking to me. He, he was expecting that I was uh, a military uh, historian going to do a, uh, a study of his time at the Joint Chiefs. And then I very quickly, and I could, I could hear him actually on his end of the phone, settling down into his nice big chair, preparing himself for a nice comfortable chat. He was in a very, very upbeat mood. Well, then I mentioned to him, well, I said I study the uh, phenomenon of UFOs and connection to the U.S. military, and and everything changed. Mm -hmm. His voice got very high. He got very uh, agitated. And I mentioned the meeting that uh, he had in 1997, and he pretended not to remember it for the longest time. And uh, until I made it very crystal clear that I spoke to everyone involved, and I know what happened, and uh, and he admitted, oh, my, I do vaguely remember this. My memory is foggy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he very quickly hung up on me, actually. He made an excuse, had to leave. Uh, and But not before he said that the whole thing is poppycock. He said, yes, they did come to me. I did look into it. There was nothing there. It's all poppycock. Ah. Now, I will tell you, my other connection, this is a man who um, – I spoke to who, I, as I said, knows Edgar Mitchell and um, also knows uh, former President Bill Clinton and has, has his own very, very strong high-level connections. He told me all about this meeting. He had a lot of his own information. And according to him, um, uh, Wilson did knock on a bunch of doors and eventually got to the program. It took him uh, two months so from April and then by June, he finally reached the program that uh, was mentioned. And I still don't know what the, uh, what the program was or where it was within the structure. And was told uh, they arranged a meeting with him. So it got that far. And he, met, he didn't meet with the program manager. He met with the attorneys <laughs> of, of the program. This is true. And, and uh, the only, they said to him the only reason they were going to meet with him or that they agreed to meet with him is to find out how he learned about the program. And they denied him access because he did not have a need to know. Whoa. And uh, the, the, the follow-up to that 
And uh, again, I, I'm in the position of having to trust my source, but I will just say I know my source. I've spent time with this source. He's a, he's a famous public figure himself, and I, I believe him. Uh, this source said to me, Wilson was very distraught. He was very upset about it. Uh, he used the phrase, not made by human hands. That is, in other words, the technology that he knew was true. Uh, was being studied at deeply classified levels, deeply classified levels, was not made by human hands. That's a direct quote. And he was upset by the fact that as a senior government official, he was locked out and uh, and that this was something that did not bode well for uh, for a free society, such as our such as what we in the United States believe that we want to have. So that's essentially it. And uh, yeah, he he got a little bit upset with me. I mean, the whole thing was, how could he possibly admit that this is true? Obviously, if he were to admit that this is true, I knew this going in, but that would topple potentially the whole house of cards. If he told me the truth and I handled it well and wrote a good article, got it some publicity, I mean, my God, that's that's a serious You statement. got very, very close <laughs> to, uh, yeah, you, you, you came a little too close to the flame there, I would say. I did. I felt that I had to do it, and I'm glad that I did it. Um, I would love one day to meet with with him uh, personally and and uh, offer a personal apology. I certainly I don't like causing anyone stress. I don't think he's a bad guy. Uh, he's he's been he's in the system. You know, he retired from the Joint Chiefs. He's got a nice job uh, in the defense contracting system. Uh, again, working with space technology. Nonetheless, I'm sure he's a good man and um, certainly did not want all of this to come out. No you know, doubt. He saw his, his whole life flashing before his eyes, his security clearances. Uh, <laughs> and, and, to, and to underscore how serious this is, I, uh, I once asked astronaut Edgar Mitchell about, uh, about some sources of his own. Basically, Edgar Mitchell for many years is, he doesn't really say much about this now, but he did many, many times. And he told me personally that he had two ultra-elite sources within the uh, classified world that told him explicitly of bodies and technology that do not come from here that are being studied. Now, you know, if, if any regular guy off the street says this, who's going to care? But Edgar Mitchell is uh, a highly respected man. He's internationally famous. He's one of 12 individuals that, uh, you know, went to the moon as part of the Apollo program. And he's a good man. I really come to like him very much. And so he said this. So I wrote to him uh, around the time that I spoke with Wilson, actually. And I, I said, look, sir, I, I know you've made these statements for years. And I realize they were told to you in confidence. Uh, you only said to me that they were very, very high level people. Now, one of them, I believe, was was Thomas Wilson, I'm convinced, but I still don't have confirmation that Wilson told Mitchell this. But what I asked Edgar Mitchell was, can you, even if you can't give up their names, can you throw me a bone? I'm trying to do some work here. I'm trying to put together a bona fide history. I would like to move this ball forward a little bit. Can you give me something, a direction to look, something, a hint? He wrote back, and what he said was, look, Richard, I, I get where you're coming from. I respect it, but here's the problem. The people who came to me when they did, did so at great risk professionally, personally, and risk to their families. And I cannot give them up, not until after they have deceased. 
So when you say risk to your family, mm-hmm. I, I ask, how many, time, how many ways can you interpret that? There's not many ways. Seems going to me right we're back talking... to the uh, back to Roswell and uh, and uh, Sheriff Wilcox. <laughs> That's right. Threatening Who was to also plant bodies. Threatened and yeah. his family. Listen, I we, we I I want to come back at some point and do a show just about what we're talking about now, uh, an entire um, an hour or more. But uh, uh, while time permits, I want to I want to basically turn the rest of the uh, the hour over to you and Victor. I want Victor. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to give us a, a, a synopsis of, of your presentation down at the meetup in, in Rochester last month, dealing with CIA mind control. And then I, I, I want to, uh, Richard, you to, to engage uh, Victor on this. And I'm just going to sit back and learn. <laughs> great, great. Where, where well, Victor, do... I just want to say yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation of uh, just a few weeks ago. And I know everyone in the group loved it. It was uh, a really engaging uh, exploration of... CIA manipulation of uh, much of American and world culture. Well, really. that's, that's basically it, Rich. Uh, when I, in the planning process, I really didn't intend to go in the direction that I ended up going. It, it, it was only because of the amount of research. And I'm sure that you've been through this before. You start on something, and you figure you're going in one direction, and you say, here's, I'm going to, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to go and do this. This is, this is what I intend to do. And eventually, at some point, a tangent shows up, that magnetically takes you in another direction. That's exactly what happened uh, when I spoke with Robbie Graham. And he, he talked to me, a, a UK researcher in, in the film industry. Yeah. And after speaking with him, uh, the presentation completely took a, you know, almost a, a direct right-hand turn. And looking at the, the number of tentacles that the intelligence agencies in the United States have had control of uh, in the film industry and, and in media. And when, when I heard things like and read about, not just from Robbie, but from other sources, where you get the CIA uh, being on the scene, on the set of, of, a, of a movie like Race to Witch Mountain, um, and, the, and, the, and the producer saying to me, I had a high-level individual with me the entire time on the set, giving me, um, you know, go this way, do this, look at it this way, and then eventually uh, learning from other sources that the CIA was also involved in supplying materials and weaponry in the transformer, uh, either the CIA or the Department of Defense, to, you know, providing you know, tanks and military things for transformers, and, and then to the point of actually rewriting or suggesting rewritten parts of a script. And the more I read about this, I said, my goodness, you know, whose pocket is, is, is big enough to handle and be in so that this, this entity, this intelligence entity within the United States, and call, I won't just call it the CIA, I'll call it just the right. intelligence arm of the, of the American government. Like, how deeply are they into Hollywood and film and media? And the more I read, the more I became absolutely convinced that these agencies are, are basically in control of what the American and the international uh, you know, audiences and with respect to news and other kinds of media and film, they're in control of what people are hearing. And that's what I tried to bring out, uh, especially with an organization like Disney. And when you take a look at how in-depth Disney uh, has made its attempts to, uh, I guess, characterize any type of science fiction with the help of the American intelligence agency, um, if you tell that story in a bedtime uh, situation with a little boy or little girl, it'll shatter the dreams of anyone who believes that Walt Disney was a man who wanted the best for the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's, you get into all kinds of vile and very obstructive kinds of things with, with the media. So I, with that comment, I'll turn it over to you, Rich, and you just sort of 
Well, I just uh, I will add uh, because my my head is spinning at the moment, uh, in part because I I co-authored a book a, a little over a year ago with a man who is a Hollywood uh, producer and director. That's Bryce Zabel. Uh, Bryce, back in the late '90s, created and uh, produced the television show Dark Skies, which um, of course it remains. It's a show that's aged very well. And it dealt with the UFO cover-up from the insider's point of view back from the 1960s and early 70s. Now, um, I've discussed this with Bryce many times, this whole issue of CIA manipulation of Hollywood. And uh, I will just tell you, and Bryce would would certainly uh, second this, that his opinion was always that that was overstated, that the CIA's control over Hollywood was very overstated, or that the government's infiltration of Hollywood is overstated. And I... Uh, when we wrote our book, there was there was this little bit of tension involved on the issue because we didn't see it was one of the few areas where we did not truly see eye to eye. I've always been more inclined to see that there is uh, behind the scenes control or at least influence, and he, in his own perspective, did not. Now, what's interesting is that Bryce has become very close with Robbie Graham, who, of whom you just mentioned, who's the UK uh, historian on. Uh, on Hollywood, really, dealing with the UFO topic. And I really wonder where they're going to end up on this because Robbie's position is, is very similar to yours and is, I think is very similar to mine. Um, you know, one book that you might enjoy reading, if you haven't already, Victor, is uh, it, it's a, about a 10-year-old book now, I think nine, 2000, uh, by a UK historian named Francis Stoner Saunders, and it's called, um, the original title, I think, was called The Cultural Cold War, and it dealt explicitly with the CIA's management, not of the film industry per se, but of major, supposedly independent, but not independent, U.S. cultural organizations uh, as a way to manage both ends of the political spectrum, the conservative and the liberal end. Um, as a way of getting liberals on board with the cause of the Cold War, essentially. And uh, it's, a, it's a great study, uh, Francis Stoner Saunders, The Cultural Cold War. I think it has a different title now. This, this business has been going on a long time. You know, if, if we were ever to get a true single-volume history of the CIA that lays all of these crimes out, whether it's cultural manipulation, control over the media, the way Carl Bernstein wrote about in Rolling Stone all yeah. those years ago. Project Mockingbird. Uh, right, or the drug trafficking, which has been uh, written about by people like Alfred McCoy uh, back in the 80s and before that. I mean, my God, uh, may maybe the book's been written and I just haven't seen it, but there's a, there's a history of criminality. Uh, you can say all you want about the motives of some of these cold warriors. Undoubtedly, they believed in what they were doing. You, you know, you got to play dirty if you're going to fight a bunch of bad guys. Okay, but um, you know, the philosopher—I uh, think it was Nietzsche—who once said, "Beware of fighting monsters, lest you become one." And uh, I think this is what really happened to the U.S. intelligence community. Yeah, when, when I look at the, just for example, um, what I brought up in the presentation regarding the Washington Post and the publishers involved and how that Wall Street lawyer um, involved himself uh, and, and both of the individuals landing up committing suicide, quote-unquote, and, and the history yeah. of, of each one of them. Uh, and you, exactly. You know, you, 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 you land up um, drawing this large web and, and, and at, the, at the vertices of each web you get this critical point of information 
and you land up looking at that point of information at the risk of ignoring other points of information along the web. But at some point, you have to connect the dots. And as soon as you begin connecting these dots with all of this apparent, uh, you know, uh, disparate information, you land up becoming completely convinced. And even if you don't have a conspiratorial mind, any journalist who, who, who sits down for two weeks, I would challenge any journalist to sit down and two, in two weeks look at this web of information and tell yeah. me that there's nothing to it. Report back to me in two months, in, in two weeks, two months, whatever it happens to be. Take your own time frame. Tell me that there's nothing to this at all, and then I'll just yeah. back away and, and just sort of sit in my rocking chair for the rest of my existence. Let me jump in here with um, what, 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 what may probably be the, the final question, uh, Victor and, and Richard, to you both. If the CIA or naval intelligence or the granddaddy of all intelligence or, or whatever it is, whoever it is, is be working with Hollywood to to shape and mold the message, and whether we're talking about uh, the event. Uh, on television, or the, the the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, what is what is their 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 current strategy? Because I don't, I can't see one. I can't make you know. If we have a movie like ET, and it tell, with Spielberg telling us that uh, that they're friendly, and then we have a remake of War of the Worlds telling us no, uh, they're yeah. bad. I don't get the strategy. What's what's the what, well? What I think this this is a point that uh, Bryce and I came to when we were writing AD. It was a realization that. There doesn't seem to be a single message, but there's one there's one thing that they all have in common. None of them actually deal in an intelligent way with the reality of the UFO situation and contact situation as we know it. None of them. In other words, uh, whether it's even if they have gray type aliens like kind of sort of in Paul, which is a comedy, uh, they don't really handle it in any kind of realistic way. Of course, uh, War of the Worlds absolutely not done in a realistic way in terms of what we know in terms of research um even et you know 20 30 years ago that was really didn't um the only ones that sort of came close might have been close encounters of of the third kind which is way going way back and uh i'm sure if i really thought about it, there might be a few others but most of them like the event that the nbc show the event mm -hmm. um did everything except have UFOs. There was no UFO uh, phenomenon in that universe of the event. I mean, think about it. They had aliens. Instead of Roswell, they had some crash in Alaska where the aliens looked entirely human, just like us. Uh, there were no abductions. There were no UFO sightings. So what the hell kind of world is this? In other words, it was an alternate reality. So that all of these shows that deal with this theme, it seems to me, do not really get into it. Me, the X-Files sort of tried to do that, I guess. Uh, and I think that, that really stood out as a, as a superior show in so many ways. Um, Curiously, but, we just had uh, William, <clears throat> William Davis uh, on, on the show uh, in, in, just prior yes. to joining us. Oh, yes, us, so. I know. Uh, listen, a great character there. Um, I, uh, we got to say uh, goodbye, but I, I want, um, Victor, one more time, give us the details of the, uh, the speaking engagement. Sure. And then... Once again, uh, January the 28th, that's a Saturday, at the North York District Public Library, 40 Orchard View Boulevard in Toronto. It's in the Young and Eglinton area. And uh, you can register in just one way. You can uh, register by emailing the following address, alienmajestic, all one word, at gmail.com. And the organizer of the event, Chris Rushak, will get back to you with a confirmation. And the admission, by the way, is in fact $10. And, but at that point, you will be listening to probably one of the world's foremost experts.
in this field. Richard Dolan, and uh, we thank you for, uh, for dropping by. Oh, guys, it was a pleasure, and I'd do it any time. Uh, and when the, when the new book comes out, uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, bring you back on. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thank you. Victor, uh, thanks as always. It's been great, and it's always a pleasure to talk to someone like Richard. It just, uh, it really, it energizes people. Uh, you and I will do an hour on your research into uh, CIA mind control in the UFO field. If well, for that. Yeah, that, that'd be great. The, the, the essence of it all was uh, com a complete surprise to me. It really was. It came out totally different than I expected it to come out. And uh, the, the surprise element and the factors involved and the kinds of depth of the research that I had to go into to, to really go back and, and do some journalistic... I, I'm not trained as a journalist, you know, I'm trained as an educator. But let me tell you, the stuff that I unearthed was very, very disturbing. All right, we can't wait to have that conversation. Victor Vigiani, the director of Zeland News Service. Uh, my thanks to David Gaskin for production. William B. Davis, cancer man from the X-Files. Thank you to, uh, to Bill for dropping by. And, of course, Richard Dolan. Uh, back next week, George Janescu undergoing a real amazing uh, experience live on the air, a past life regression. Who was George in a previous life? We are going to find out live on the radio beginning at 11 o'clock. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.